0: We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion
1: and respect. This
0: is the Intersection Hub podcast,
1: where we have candid conversations
0: for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie,
1: and my name is Paul Nazareth.
0: We believe in the power of community, and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge,
1: and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector.
0: Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. Apologies in advance. More than one of us swears in this episode, and it wasn't Paul. Today, we welcome Jason Lewis into the Hub. In this conversation, we totally geek out over all the changes, hopes, and dreams we would like to see for fundraisers and the organizations they serve. Jason is the founder of Responsive Fundraising, a consultancy committed to creating places where fundraising can thrive. The team at Responsive ensures that their clients understand and experience a holistic approach to fundraising that is meaningful for those on both sides of the exchange. Jason is a professor at York College in Pennsylvania, where he teaches nonprofit management, social entrepreneurship, and small business consulting. Jason's first book, The War for Fundraising Talent, was an honest yet hopeful critique of contemporary fundraising practices. Jason's follow-up is scheduled for release in early 2022. In this conversation, we talk about what fundraising will look like when it grows grows up, we talk about cats and chameleons and wizards, we dig in about what professional fundraising really means, and we question, has the professionalism of the sector done more harm than good? And we talk about the great resignation affecting us, and, and or have we always been experiencing staffing crisis? So after quite a bit of pontificating about the reasons behind the abhorrent staff turnover rate in our sector, we eventually find optimism for the future of fundraising. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Please join us in welcoming Jason to The Hub. Jason, welcome to The Hub
2: i am delighted to be here uh, paul i'm delighted to be here kimberly i'm delighted that you invited me to be on the show today let me just say that i really like being with my canadian fundraising friends so i've gotten to know my share of uh both american fundraisers and canadian fundraisers and by comparison i think i like you folks better so oh uh, no <laughs> there's just something there is and, and there is something beginning there is there is a sincerity And a willingness to, there's a graciousness. I think I've said that before. I think I've had a a guest on my podcast talking, you know, a Canadian fundraiser on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the word graciousness that sort of comes up. Mm -hmm. Um, I just find my Canadian friends to be uh, not necessarily, we can be on the other side of an issue. We can debate, we can disagree or whatever, but there's a graciousness that tends to be sort of embedded in even in every conversation I've had with you folks. So Glad to be here.
0: That is so sweet. There's a Canadian <laughs> niceness, um, but
2: <laughs> yeah. or
1: at least we could admit here on the podcast, it's it's more about passive aggression. Maybe that's or, it. Maybe or that's dysfunctional
0: it. Functional <laughs> plen- politeness, but but yeah. in any case, we are so happy to have you here, and uh, and I know we do have some fundraising conferences up here that folks love coming to because uh, there is a beautiful fundraising culture in Canada, no doubt. No doubt. So we were inspired to have this conversation because of the Chronicle of Philanthropy's article and all of the talk about the great resignation. Um, but the three of us have been talking about donor retention since it feels like for me forever, with over half of fundraisers wanting to leave their jobs, over half of executive directors not having confidence in their fundraisers, and over half of executive directors. Um, feeling unappreciated or not executive directors staff a fundraising staff so we have a massive problem and I just thought it would be really nice of anybody Jason I think you're the guy to talk to about this um why do you think contemporary fundraising is uh failing
1: um
2: I, I, I think um, I, I think you're right. Uh, the three of us, as I followed the conversations, Kimberly, that you have had and and've I've read your, I've, I've followed your conversations, Paul. I've certainly followed yours for some time as well. Um, I think um, I think fundraising finds itself in what I call its messy adolescence, and I have been saying that for several years now. And because we find ourselves in sort of this messy adolescence, both at an organizational, uh, you know, at the local level within organizations, but also at a professional level or sort of a macro view of the sort of the uh, professional community, um, I think there's still some growing up to do. And I think when we do some of as we do some more of that growing up, professionally speaking, collectively, um, I think we're going to see ourselves sort of work ourselves out of some of these issues that we keep sort of coming up I, I don't think that the great resignation as it's being talked about is terribly um uh, we all know the three of us certainly know that res- people the steady re- resigning of fundraising post is nothing new to us and it certainly hasn't been the pandemic that necessarily has caused a lot of that and we were talking about it for several years prior to that Mm -hmm. Not terribly common. And then the idea that our donors on the other side of the exchange, you know, renewal rates dropping steadily year after year after year, which I see is largely just the other side of the the other side of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as we get our heads wrapped around more carefully and critically about what it is that's sort of precipitating that sort of departure on both sides of the exchange, the more we get our heads wrapped around that. I think the more we'll understand it. I think we'll do a little bit more growing up, and um, and then when things like the pandemic or when things like the this notion of the Great Resignation sort of come along and and shine spotlights on this, um, uh, maybe we won't uh, be as distressed by it. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. Although I do wonder, uh, our profession is over a hundred years old. I'm wondering when we're going to grow up, uh, and I and I. Am curious if you think that growing up is because the the profession is formalized in education programs now. But I want to give my perfect podcast partner Paul an opportunity to jump in and create space for him. Paul, do you do you want to help? Uh, uh...
1: Yeah, I you know I definitely agree about that adolescence. Although the the work is a hundred plus years old, the yeah. professionalism, the moving parts, the mechanisms of yeah. education, certification you know we look at our colleagues in the UK who've tried to regulate some of this and create legislation around fundraising and fundraisers it's so far been a disaster you know and that's the challenge is what's the moving parts around this and you know can we we've tried to self regulate government doesn't know where to step in here in Canada as they start to try to understand some of the problems one of them being granting of money and the culture of giving fundraising all of that it's it's again it's definitely messy and it's nobody understands each other between the charities the government the donors there's there's not a lot of dialogue between us
0: it's the most understood profession on the planet i think um But, you know, you talk about the certification and the formalizing of the education. And and we just had Lisa Greer on the podcast uh, last week who said that all of that training is too prescriptive. Donors are a, a lot more human than what we're being taught. And I'm just wondering if there's a bit of a disconnect there with what you're saying.
2: You know, Lisa's become a good friend. I've gotten to know Lisa quite a bit. And um, I, I, think, I think I'm think i going to be one of the guys who's going to start really sort of tooting the horn. Is that the right way? <laughs> Sometimes when you do this podcasting stuff, you get... Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually starting to lean away from the idea of professionalization. I'm actually starting to lean towards the idea that fundraising is a skill that nonprofit leaders need to have, yeah. that any nonprofit leader needs to have. And um, I think the professionalization of our sector and then sort of downstream, the professionalization of fundraising is actually becoming more problematic than it is actually doing us any service. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think when, and and I, I, I reflect a little bit on my own consulting work. So I spend a lot of time working with executives in small nonprofit organizations that are in leadership roles and would define themselves professionally by the sort of the domain that they're in so if they're in education or if they're in healthcare that's the that's sort of the professional field that they would be in but but what 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 my work tends to be and this has been the case for about the last seven or eight years tends to be very much teaching them the skills and developing the confidence to do fundraising work that like for example the three of us know how to do very well um and it's getting them in many ways getting them to sort of Dismantle some of their assumptions about how it all works, um, getting them to be less dependent upon tools, um, you know, galas, golf tournaments and other gadgets and stuff and become more dependent upon the relationship building process that emerges between themselves and the donor. Um, and, and, And so if you think about that, I'm starting to think that I'm going to be advocating more and more for this idea of fundraising as a skill which I don't think I've gone on, right. I'm not the first person that said that, but I think that's the first time I've heard, this will be the first time I've sort of gone on record with that. Um, that I don't, I don't know that we need to professionalize fundraising all that much. Okay, uh, see,
0: this is the, this is, this is the, this is the, what is it? It, it's not, it, it's, it, there's a paradox and both mm-hmm. can exist at the same time. Right. Like there are certain tactics and there's a certain way and there's a certain um, theory behind it. And maybe what we haven't done is layered in the intuition, the listening, the soft skills that are required to do it really, really well. And then we're not setting up our organizations to understand what to ask us for or how to measure success.
2: Well, I, th- I think the professionalization question comes down to what can you professionalize at? I mean, think about it for a moment. We, we, if you think about what fundraise, if you sort of dis- divide it between highly technical fundraising that you could, you could reasonably say we could become professional technicians at, or yes, if you all profession
0: lives, all or, lives in the gift planning area. So that's, there's some. Yeah,
2: yeah you, you can basically become a credential professional at something in in highly technical areas, but I don't know that I ever want to suggest that we can pro- Become professional relationship builders. You know my relationship with my friends, my spouse, the two of you. I don't really want to professionalize it, mm-hmm. and I like to think that fundraising at its best resembles something like getting the relationship right between the two of you. You know, uh, and, and and so I don't know that I don't even know if that part of fundraising is supposed to be professional.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. one of the, I keep in touch with a lot of of uh, search professionals in recruiting in a charity nonprofit very, a lot of them are very comfortable recruiting eds and ceos and many of them have confessed to me they really don't like having to recruit chief development officers <laughs> then they got to figure out what the heck fundraising is all about and of course what is great fundraising management all about two very yeah. different things in my in, and i think your experience too and one of the things that was interesting interesting to me was uh, i remember a collaboration with you and my colleague david hutchinson here yes. in canada And it was one of the first times a search professional had ever really said, here's something I can actually wrap my head around. Uh And the the concept of what does professional fundraising mean? What are the skills? What do you cultivate? What can I look for, hire for? And it's, it's, it's interesting that way because, you know, when we think about, you know, billion dollar advancement campaigns and all that kind of stuff, that's, they're kind of like, unless it's somebody who's come up the hierarchy, what do I even look for? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's an interesting other other kind of subset of this is who's managing the fundraisers. And unfortunately, for, a, for quite a number of years now, people are just defaulting to old school sales managers. Yeah. You know, managing sales reps and all that. And that, that, in my experience, has also been a disaster because they don't connect to the mission element of it. Mm-hmm
2: yeah it's it's interesting that you bring up that 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 collaboration that we did in toronto back in uh, i think that was 2019 before the world that was that was the year before the world completely shut down on all of us <laughs> i think i would have hoped to have been back i think i was actually scheduled to be in ontario a year later and 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 it's unfortunate we couldn't do that but paul what we do in that particular seminar that you're referring to is we're trying to give participants sort of a very high level systems level understanding of how all this works And it's very much centered on what I refer to and other organizational theorists refer to as organizational design. I don't think these organizations who are doing fundraising really well, or even organizations who are perhaps stumbling around in it, but then, but perhaps can mature, even have fundraising, need fundraising improvements. I think we've got organizational design problems. We haven't designed fundraising into the infrastructure and culture of the organization and then consequently fundraising looks like it's not doing its job Mm -hmm. um if we designed our organizations from the get-go where it recognized that the donor and the fundraiser are going to play a meaningful part in what it is we're doing just like everybody else at the table not giving them a superior seat but not giving them an inferior corner either um but we just said, okay, we're going to have this integrated relationship with the rest of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think fundraising would play out a whole lot better.
0: You're so right, but I want to give space to Paul because I've got like a thousand different thoughts going through my head. And
1: I <laughs> I'll know. do one more than you jump in. Kimberly. Go ahead, Paul. You know, Jason, you were reflecting on a recent podcast of yours with Scott Perry and talking about meaning for fundraisers and the danger yeah. of being lured in by you know, charismatic leaders and yeah. sex statements. I think also that a brand is also something sometimes, you know, having that, that, that logo on your CV that people would recognize as part yeah. of it. And then you get there and the culture. And again, we we've used the term culture philanthropy way too much mm-hmm. for us. It's a culture of fundraising. Is it respected? Do we have an equal seat at the table? I do think the great resignation is affecting our community only because my, our association runs a job board and it's all on fire. And, <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting because the bottom of the pipeline is disappearing. And even the top of the pipeline, I'm seeing people opting out and saying, you know what, I'm going to find another path. And, you know, there, I, again, we can't pin down what's the crisis here. And you had some really interesting comments and even your discussion with Scott on the concept of meaning purpose in the work? And are we helping people as they evolve in their careers? Are we giving them those meaty opportunities as opposed to one of those little perks? So
2: Paul, I have been developing a theory that's going to come out in my forthcoming book. I don't want to pull back the curtain completely on this, but it's the idea that, um, and some of our friends over in in the UK have um, in the, what I will call the sociology sort of, these are all sociologists who are looking at fundraising. And what a sociologist is generally doing is they're looking at the interaction between human beings and allowing Mm -hmm. um uh it's the interaction itself between the giver and the receiver in the case of the fundraiser the fundraiser and the benefactor for example and that meaning emerges from that and i think to answer the question why are development officers leaving their post or why are um, even donors, you know, discontinu- discontinuing their support, it's because they're actually doing the act of giving, or you know, the the, the activity is actually happening, but the um, the meaning that emerges from the interaction isn't happening. Which is to say that I could throw a gift at you, Paul, or you could throw a gift back at me, and that gift, the, the, the gift would actually happen, but it's only in the interaction between you and I that the meaning actually emerges from. Um, And I don't think that enough of us, when we think about the way that fundraising is designed, are thinking about the fact that it doesn't really work. It it fundamentally just doesn't work. If I throw a $125 gift at you on Giving Tuesday, for example, and you don't offer me some sort of meaningful response from another, you know, I'm the human being on the one side of the interaction, you're the human being on the other, receiving that gift and acknowledging it and expressing gratitude. If you don't give me that meaning back, or if you don't give me that response back, meaning doesn't emerge from what just happened. And so sure you got my $125, but that doesn't mean that I'm gonna keep wanting to come back to the table and give it to you again and again. But similarly, you're not experiencing the, 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 re, the receiving of the gift and then expressing gratitude in any, any sort of meaningful way. I'm getting my t- tongue all tied up here. But all of this to say, fundraising is becoming so one-directional where there's no sort of reciprocating sort of circular relationship going on between the givers and the receivers. Fundraising is becoming so one-directional um ultimately i think we could we could sort of could, we could shoot ourselves in the foot and destroy it all ourselves because we keep designing it we keep designing it this way and i don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon if we don't figure so, some of this stuff out
0: yeah. i just want to i just want to stop being the host and be the guest now like i have <laughs> so much to say to you about that uh, and so many anecdotes um and this is about moving beyond transactional, right? This is yes. relational, relation, relation, relational, relational. Thank you. And to take a step back, so so many anecdotes about when I was an executive director or a director of fundraising, transformative interactions, transformative interactions that resulted in millions of dollars in collaboration. And I guarantee you, no one in the organization will remember. That it was that conversation with Kimberly at that party or in that meeting that resulted in the tidal wave of support that came after and the transformation of the organization. And this is why, so I'm not going to get into the anecdotes around those things because you're the guest and we're going to talk about you. I just want to um, express my passion for the beauty of being a director of fundraising And I've said this to my clients for years and I experienced it myself. The beauty of being a director of fundraising in an organization that really appreciates that role is that you have touch points with program staff. You have touch points with the board. You have touch points with your volunteers, with your donors, with your management. And in every one of those spheres, you have an opportunity to, as I have spoken about quite a bit, influence change with each in each of those directions and as a result of this and this is the systemic part that you're talking about as a result of that all of a sudden there's organizational transformation there's culture staff want to stay in their jobs no one really can pinpoint what the catalyst was for that this is i i'm all goosebumpy by that but did i hope did that make any sense at all
2: Let's go back to your comment. Let's go back to your, um, since we all like to, the three of us seem to be really good at ruffling feathers and we like to put, put, put people on the spot. Let's, 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 let's stop letting people in our space use this simple dichotomy of transactional versus relational because uh, anthropologists will basically tell us that human beings throughout history forever have had three modes of relating to each other um what is transactional what we're generally referring to the when we say things are transactional we're generally referring to a mode of relating to the marketplace so we're basically talking about what anthropologists would call sort of the commodity exchange it's the relationship that i have with walmart for example and it's not a meaningful relationship mm-hmm. And we, and that's what we're generally referring to when we say transactional, we're actually talking, I have a relationship with Walmart. I just don't give a damn about it. Right. Right. And they quite frankly, don't give a damn about me. So when we are all saying, when when somebody says, Oh, I want to do relationship fundraising. How about the three of us sort of commit to saying, okay, please define what you mean by relationship. The other thing is we all have relationships with the government too, Those, those are what are known as coercive relationships. And those coercive relationships are non-voluntary relationships where the mode of exchange is like taxes. We can't, we're not, we don't voluntarily exchange money with the, you know, the government of Canada, Canada, or my friends down in Washington. That's, that's a coercive relationship, um, The relationship I don't think we in the fundraising space have gotten comfortable with yet is what's known as a gift relationship. And a gift relationship is defined very differently, has an entirely unique repertoire of ways of interacting and so forth. Actually, the three of us are in very many ways experiencing a gift relationship here. There's no exchange of monetary value. Um, There's no real transaction. There's no there's no commodities being exchanged we're volunteering to-
0: wait why are we doing this again <laughs> right
2: well it raises well think about it even that question that that in and of itself is in many ways part of what a gift relationship is and i think we've allowed too many of our colleagues in this space who hail from the what i would consider to be sort of the the marketing orientation or the commodity side of the world to sort of attach this notion of what is relationship fundraising. Relationship fundraising, by my definition, would be rooted in actual gifts, rooted in actual gifts that are gifts. Um, You know, the, 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 the relationship is, the relationship precedes the gift. I don't think fundraising has quite figured out that for something to be a gift actually requires the relationship to actually precede it. So if you think about the people in your life who you exchange gifts with, the gift itself is, an, is a reflection and an expression of that relationship. And absent that relationship, it's no longer a gift. It's just a commodity like buying shit at Walmart.
1: Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, we just got a data drop from uh, the Association of Fundraising Professionals on both sides of the border. They do a Canadian study about what Canadian donors want, uh, trust in charities, et cetera. And standard uh, United States, Canada, UK, the three most hated methods of fundraising are on-street fundraising, cash register asks, and kind of close third to telephone fundraising. And those are the ones I would say are the most amount of where there's an ask without a, without a relationship, yeah. without an understanding truly of gift and value exchange. And I think that's what's missing from those. Although what's so painful is All three of them are juggernaut fundraising methods.
0: But they have such a high turnover rate, it doesn't even matter. It costs more to run those programs than it does... Anyway. Okay. I don't want to have a tactical conversation, but you get to,
2: but, but, but it does matter, Kimberly, if you get to, if you get back to the idea of meaning, which is the question that, uh, my, on, on my previous show, we were talking about and Paul raised, if you want to get at the question of why people are resigning their jobs. And if you want to get at the question of why donors are not renewing their support, you have to get at that meaningful sort of question of, okay, they're exchanging with us once. You know, they're giving to us on Giving Tuesday, they're giving us $125, but something is not happening subsequent to that, which is to say that it was just about the exchange of a commodity. It's no different than me buying a box of cereal at the grocery store. And when, when we stop letting fundraising behave that way, and we stop using the logic and the rationale of the marketplace to inform our fundraising practices, I mean Kimberly let's just be perfectly honest with ourselves who's going to have the biggest issue with the things that I'm saying or the people that are listening to this podcast that hail from PR marketing and advertising sure
0: those folks they're, yeah the, the folks that that use chinese companies to send right. giant premium packs to people like me that have socks in them that I'm wearing right now they're
2: Kimberly, their worldview, the way they see the world is that the donor is one and the same with the consumer. Yeah, And, and if you, if you, if we stop, if we want to answer the question of how do we derive meaning, we stop treating our donors like they're consumers and we stop allowing our donors to in return, stop treating us like we're some sort of commodity that makes them feel good.
0: I just want to jump up for one second and rewind way back. Okay, sorry, Paul. <laughs> I just want to jump up for one sec. Um, I, I want to go to bat for what I think the true essence of you referred to the relationship fundraising folks. And I did participate with a Regari um, think tank um, yeah, yeah. of relationship fundraising.
1: Sure.
0: And the and the outcome of that was that it's a completely misunderstood. Uh, as a concept, this idea of building relationships with donors. So I just want to I think people who really have been doing that work for a long time, that phrase has become jargony and it's misunderstood. People don't know what it means. Everything that you're saying about the connection that the donor has with the charity, whichever channel that comes in, uh, whichever revenue channel that comes in, I think there is a role for relationship fundraising and, and I still I still am a, a believer in that original book by Ken Burnett. Just gonna say that, it's just that we've fucked
2: it up. But but I had Ken on my podcast about little, I, I I guess right at the beginning of the, I think it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, And one of the things he said, Kimberly, is he basically said that the problem, the underlying problem with basically his theory was that he allowed marketing to be attached to it. Yes. That's basically what he said. So it's fine that we can say we can say all day that Ken Burnett came up with this notion of relationship fundraising. But what also happened and what he owned up to, and he's he owned up to it long before he was on my podcast, but he's I made sure that he drove home the message too, for my listeners is that he, is that he, uh, that he basically hinged the whole notion on basically marketing techniques. And when you do that, you end up with something that basically behaves like the marketplace.
0: Yeah. That's totally fair. I'm glad we talked that through. Paul, do you want to say anything?
1: No, I come, I come to it from an under another perspective in our, in our work in plan giving and teaching advisors. To get involved in philanthropy, and there's a whole bunch of them now who have been kind of doing it for 10 years plus, who you know haven't really embraced the concept that they are in essence fundraisers.
2: Mm-hmm. It's just
1: that what they are really doing is empowering the the that meaning kind of piece from their clients. And so, for example, you know there's a whole bunch of them now, and you know, advice funds is one part of it, but there's a whole bunch of them out there who really actually focus on structuring gifts. Yeah. And very often it's because the charity on the other side either doesn't have kind of a competent fundraiser or somebody in that role who can help structure the gift, everything from meaning to what's the method. And they just get fired up. And <laughs> you know, we had this one advisor who's really found incredible meaning and of course, also incredible profit in creating charitable life insurance. And in one year, this one advisor has is engaged in creating $60 million of charitable life insurance. And he, whenever advisors say to him, "All right, what's the hook? What's the trick? Tell me the math," he's like, "No, it's it's in here. And if you're not coming with that, then this is not going to work for you." And in that was here really- is
0: the heart, not the head. Oh, yes, really. for
1: our listeners, again, we constantly talk about in a lot of the work that I do of that natural tension between heart and head, because in plan giving too, you can get lost in the head, right? Just like you said, the marketing is the tactics. And every time we want to talk plan giving, the marketing department's like, awesome, let's get the illustrations together. Let's get a calculator (laughs) on the website so they can calculate their, you know, and we're just like, this is how you're going to lose. And we've seen it time and time again. And for us in the world of gift planning, that's been one of the reasons why a lot of it hasn't worked. We've got all these opportunities and even the government giving us incentives, but all the tax breaks in the world for The average donor, not necessarily the wealthy creating gigantic foundations, but for the average donor, not connecting, unless there's the meaning, unless there's the journey. And again, that's what I see great fundraisers doing, getting good at walking alongside the donor in the creation of the gift and the math, the method, those are just, uh, you know, part of it, the marketing, just part of it. Mm -hmm. But at the core is what are we doing here together?
0: Mm -hmm. So... The problem we wanted to solve 20 minutes ago, or whenever it was, was staff retention. And we've just described a whole bunch of very complex and nuanced problems with our sector. So how can we, with a workshop, keep fundraisers in their jobs? This is just, we can go around and around and around and talk about this.
2: David Epstein, David Epstein in his book uh, range talks about this notion of the cult of early specialization Mm -hmm. and the cult of the early specialization is essentially what I think the fundraising profession is sort of stuck in. There's all this highly technical work and it can be in any particular zone, but we let our fundraisers specialize too early in the process and then therefore they don't develop what what he, what the author Epstein is talking about, which which is what, what he calls range. We don't develop these range of skills. And I think the way the way the way to remedy why so many people are resigning their post and not finding meaning in their work is we allow them to specialize too early in highly technical fundraising techniques. And we don't allow them to develop a range, which is to say, we uh, it, it, it take, for, for so long, so many of us sort of bought into the notion that it was later in your career that you got in front of the major donor and started building meaningful relationships with major donors. What we do with our clients is we like to take people who literally have never raised a dollar in their life and put them out in the field and basically shape the fundraiser in the field. And so I think the answer to your question, so that we're not sitting here theorizing all all afternoon, is we need to shape a fundraising profession around the idea of, of fundraisers who are literally sitting in front of donors, who are interacting and we saw this during the pandemic. I use the, I use the, I always sort of metaphor metaphorically referred to the lunch table, but during the pandemic, I repeatedly had guests on the podcast talking about how they had very meaningful, meaningful conversations over zoom with donors who previously wouldn't call them back. Mm -hmm. They were having human to human interactions with donors. And if you also think about everything that we're hearing is, is that for the most part, fundraising did its job during the pandemic. A lot of organizations are now reporting that they had bang up years that every, you know, with the exception of special events, everything was actually worked out for a lot of organizations. And what you're hearing is, is that we communicated with people. We wanted to talk to each other. We called each other back. Um, I had the guy from Bloomerang on the podcast right in the middle of last summer telling me that they were tracking more telephone calls going back and forth in the database than they ever had. And that's because there was actual real human to human communication actually happening.
1: Mm -hmm. That's meaningful work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's true. A lot
1: of the, the specialized tacticians they get either pushed down into the tactical work, the direct mail work, et cetera. Yep. There's also this, this disrespect for a term we've called the generalist, who in a lot of ways I think is the real fundraiser.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, well, that's essentially the case that Epstein's making in his book is that we need generalist in these, he, he, he's not speaking to fundraisers, he's speaking to the world. Um, we
1: do. And this is what Kimberly and a lot of her coaching work, as well as our colleague who was recently on the podcast, Cindy Wagman, who just finished a book really on fundraising for non-fundraisers. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the the real kind of democratization of the profession takes place because you know how many professional fundraisers do we have in the market? They represent probably only five, 10% of charities. What about the rest of everybody else? And in, in Canada, we have a very strong legal distinction between charities around 85,000 and 180,000 nonprofits. And when we can help the rest, everybody else to learn how to do great fundraising, meaningful work, meaningful connections. That's when I think the profession is advancing the most, as opposed to just moving up the food chain, a small group of, you know, like charitable real estate agents. I
2: think what fundraisers is, I think what fundraisers fundraising, and I think what... Uh, I think you're like uh, Holly Wag. So she was on the podcast some time ago, and she and I uh talking about direct mail. I think we've got to get to the place with a lot of our organizations, especially the especially as they get larger, we have to allow fundraisers to stop specializing in things like direct response, in things like event planning. And we have to let the outside vendors or the outside Um, you know, the outsourcing sort of solutions do this. We have remarkably capable, you've got some great ones in Canada. We've got direct response companies that essentially can run direct response programs for organizations. And And so what we have to do is we have to allow fundraisers to stop specializing in this highly technical work that their organization can much more efficiently outsource to a third party and then allow the fundraiser to do the actual work that they can be appreciated and recognized for doing, which is like taking Mr. and Mrs. Smith out to lunch. And so when we allow these, instead of having Sally, the the in-house fundraiser on the payroll, trying to compete with the skills of a direct response company that, that, that that work can be contracted out to. Um, we need to think more practically about how we design these development offices and how do we actually ensure that the human being in the full-time job with the director of development title, how do we ensure that he or she's in a job that they are the that they are the best at doing whatever it is they're doing?
0: I, I also think, yes. And I also think it would be really interesting if we measured the success of the person who was running the annual fund by how successful the major gift fund was, right? Well,
2: okay, but Kimberly, that's gonna require, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. Talk about getting us in trouble now. That's going to require that the industry stop evaluating renewal rates and it's going to require a shift to conversion rates Mm -hmm. because renewal rates basically keep the donor exactly where they want year after year after year. So as long as I'm renewing my donor in the annual fund, it looks like I'm doing my job. What you're talking about and I concur If we start tracking conversion rates, which is to say, how is my direct response program converting, helping me convert donors into more meaningful levels of support and perhaps more importantly, more meaningful relationships. Not
0: meaningful, but mid-level, like other levels. Yeah. The smaller gifts are just
1: as meaningful. So I just wanted to call you out on that. But but also, you know, plain giving doesn't exist without the other programs. Well, yeah. And then how do you measure this? In a vacuum, it's a disaster.
0: I was in a live space the other day where someone was talking about legacies. Oh, now I'm going to get in trouble. I don't know who I'm going to get in trouble by, but I'm going to get in trouble because I was in a live conversation about legacy giving, Paul, and and somebody was questioning why charities don't invest in legacy giving. And and I responded by saying, because because boards are not measured on what happens with the organization 20 years from now.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Everybody's there to cover their own ass in their own time frame. And legacy giving is a long term win. But okay. So I just have to say, I'm jumping up and down on my seat so much that when our sound technician, who is also my husband, let checks the sound levels, it's gonna be honey, I told you, just sit in your chair. Like, don't <laughs> so that's what's happening, people. Why? Because I'm just so excited by Jason and Paul and the conversation so i'm going to take us in a different direction if that's okay unless paul you had something going
2: okay Okay. your show
0: um so what will fundraising look like when it's grown up
2: i said i mean i've already i've already been quoted in the Chronicle of philanthropy in 2019 saying that 10 years from now i think most of the fundraisers on the Most full time fundraisers on the payroll will look like what we understand to be today as major gifts officers. They will be doing work that is directly interacting with donors. Um, By what the word, I'm not a big fan of using the word major, it tends to imply more affluent donors. I just think that when fundraising grows up, you will see more of us. Uh, one of my clients, for example, refers to the difference, but it re- refers to the difference between indoor and outside in inside and outside cats. Right. We know what an inside uh, cat is and an outside yeah. cat. Yeah. I just recently had a guest on the podcast recently tell me that there was a three to one ratio of inside to outside cats in her office, in her development office, which means there was three to four times as many inside cats as outside cats. Mm. I think if you want to see the future of fundraising, it's going to swing in the other direction. You've got inside cats, you've got inside people basically running processes and running technology and running systems, but you don't have the same ratio or a higher ratio of people actually out there building meaningful relationships with other human beings.
1: The time when I found the most, the least amount of meaning in the profession, when I was my most miserable. When I was in a very high performing shop, you know, $100 million plus level, but I was keeping that desk from floating away. And the fundraising they prescribed was as much, and we, we even said it explicitly in our in our team at the time, that you you do as much as possible at your desk and leaving it is the last resort. That you'll only do it to go get the check, you know, and, and uh, I remember just thinking, this just doesn't make any sense to me. And again, when I see people finding their meaningful work and when I see organizations doing the most meaningful work, and then again, some of my relationships as an advisor, working with donors, being able to say to donors, can you tell me about meaningful engagements with organizations? And the ones that they they say I've had meaningful engagements with is when those outside cats are engaging them, when they're connected to them. And again, I, I, I glom onto this jargon word a lot of people are using now as journey. And again, really what it means is integrated fundraising, when we can walk alongside the donor and we don't say stuff to them like, oh, you're at this giving level, well, you're, you you got to talk to Dougie over here. $1,501? <laughs> I can't talk to you. I'll get stabbed. You know, it's it's the squid games of fundraising. Oh Jesus! No. this, the, is, this uh, is one of the problems and it's and it's vicious too in advancement shops just think of prospect research and how many yeah. times i have to you know fight for a donor because of our faculty our college and that kind of culture too that's the stuff that's just crapping out the profession
0: so I, go I, ahead they,
1: they did they did a,
2: a EI, EAB. Um, EAB is a research group in higher in the higher education space. They did a study a couple of years ago. I'm one of probably one of their biggest fans of the curious chameleon study. The curious chameleon study basically looked at, they identified 1200 of the 1200 fundraisers that they interviewed. They interviewed a slice that were the high performing fundraisers. And they, these were the individuals that they referred to as curious chameleons um, the interesting thing behind the curtain of what the curious chameleon is. I've looked at the research. It generally uh, lined up with what on the Myers-Briggs is an INTJ. An INTJ tends to be an introverted individual who sees bit can see, you know, very intuitive, who sees the big picture can make, you know, and very organized. I think these are a lot of our people who are inside cats right now running direct response programs. Yeah. And they need to learn how to become outside cats and stop being so scared to death about sitting across the lunch table with Mrs. Smith because Mrs. Smith is not going to jump across the table and bite your head off.
0: Mrs. Smith is just like our mutual friend, Lisa Greer, who just wants to yes. be curious about you and have and an the, I, and a curious
2: And a curious chameleon. I'm, I'm not a curious, by that definition, by the Myers-Briggs definition, I don't fit because I'm an ENTP, but an E, but an INTJ, they're also really great listeners. They're really great listeners. And so we need some of these highly relational people who are generally introverted people to have the confidence to get out into the field, build meaningful relationships with the leases of the world and stop thinking that their professional identity has to be wrapped up in all this technical stuff. That's fundraising 10 years out. If I had my way.
0: Paul and I have talked about this before, and uh, I deliberately stayed ignorant when I was working on legacy programs on more complicated vehicles because I didn't want to know. I understand, and and I have my CFRE, but so I I knew how to answer the questions. But I've often said to donors and in training that it's not our job to understand the complex nuances no. of, of those gift vehicles. We just need to be able to talk to the donor about their options and refer them to a financial advisor, right?
1: And we've also got the history to show when you when you do it, when you lean into the technical, you don't win. You don't close the gift. Yeah. You don't engage the donor. When it gets all up in the head, everybody just gets, you know, even when I teach it, I tell them, look, are you engaged right now or is your eyes glassed over and you want to die? When I, I I teach them the technical gifts and stuff like that. We've got advisors who do that. That's their job. That's that's the piece that they need to be on. We again got to really keep connecting to the to that motivation, that meaning with donors. But it's this is actually one of the critical pain points of plan giving. It's one of the reasons why the whole profession kind of hasn't worked or stalled for decades, because we keep telling everybody that you've got to be some sort of super technician.
0: Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree that having said that, and as enjoyable as this conversation is, because, you know, I can geek out over this stuff all day. How does this conversation solve the problem, which I think is the most important problem in our sector of staff turnover and satisfaction?
2: I, I, I thought I, th- I was at least trying to help answer that question. I think if we, I think if fundraisers were in front of donors more often in my first book, in my first book, I drew a line between two types of gifts. I said, there's two types of gifts in the world and it had nothing to do with the size of the gift or the, or the meaning on either side. It has to do with the initial and the subsequent gift. Those are the only two gifts I like to see. I think if you systematically made more of our job descriptions narrowly focused on on securing subsequent gifts at whatever size, which generally is on the different which is on the more meaningful side of the relationship and has ha- much higher expectations going in both directions. And we let the and we let direct response companies, for example, take care of securing the initial gift. I think you could totally revolutionize fundraising. But we have a professional profession right now that is obsessed with securing initial gifts. And so we get, we get on this hamster wheel of how many initial gifts we can get. And then the system basically, you know, keeps punching us in the gut and telling us that we suck and we don't know what we're doing because we can't get to those subsequent gifts. Those are two, those are two. Kimberly, those are literally two different job descriptions. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: A job description that says initial gifts generally doesn't pay for itself. It might break even. A job description that says subsequent gifts on it oftentimes means high engagement and and really high margin fundraising.
0: And if we put a stewardship budget line up against the subsequent gift line if we said this is what it costs to get the next gift, because often stewardship is just begging for a postage stamp increase in the budget, right? But if we put, if we said, okay, to get that second gift, these are the things that we need to do. And we measured the subsequent gifts up against the stewardship budget. I bet you that would transform the results in the budget. Are you following me?
2: I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the stewardship language. It just sounds to me like customer service bullshit that Walmart uses. Right. The stewardship language to me just sounds like the inability to shift the the fundraisers focus to subsequent gifts. Once I'm in a, a, a fundraiser, like, for example, a relationship that I might have as a major gifts officer with Lisa, for example, Stewardship between me and Lisa, if she was my donor would just look like a relationship. There is no steward. There's no, there's no mechanism involved. It's just me having a relationship. You know, you know, it's, it's like me stewarding the relationship that I have with the two of you, the two of you, we're going to probably continue to engage in meaningful ways. We'll swap podcast episodes, so forth and so forth. We don't need a stewardship plan necessarily to do that.
1: Part of the no,
0: problem you need to be... I'm, go ahead, Paul.
1: I was just gonna, institutions want to institutionalize everything. right? <laughs> into, they want to turn it into a machine.
0: But if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I feel like there's a book or a resource and I just want to share it with them, um, I need to have a budget to be able to purchase it and send it in the mail and say... Hey, we talked about this. I thought you'd really appreciate it. Um, and yes, I, yes. I'm not sure that. So let's be really clear. It's about empowering that person to be able to spend money when they need to, to foster and maintain a relationship.
2: Yes, ma'am. Totally.
0: That's what stewardship is.
2: Yeah, that's exact. And stewardship. But, but see then, but see about the way you just described it, Kimberly, you just described stewardship as a skill that's a skill no differently than I would probably say fundraising in general is that human beings who work in nonprofit organizations and are the beneficiaries of charitable donors ought to have. I I mean, I've got a client relation. I was on site with a client last week I left there knowing that the next time I'm I'm coming, I've got to bring him a a, a new copy of a book that I referenced. That's this that's stewarding that relationship, but it's not a mechanism. It's just it's just built into how I know to keep that relationship going.
0: Right, but imagine if you had somebody tell you that there was no budget to do that.
2: That's the, uh, you know what I call that? And I call that the Dorothy complex in my new book. That's basically all these wizards who hide behind curtains and don't like to have anything to do with relationships. Anybody who basically doesn't have anything to do with the relationships is usually calling the shots in our organizations. Mm -hmm. And so we're out there actually trying to do the work Mm -hmm. while the wizards hide behind the curtains. And I think what people like you and I and Paul are doing is, is we're stirring up some of the we're stirring up some of this angst and giving voice to these people who are saying look
1: we're tired of listening to these
2: wizards
0: my hands are tied i'm just going to go find another job
1: I'm yeah I think again, right. all three of us are tired of hearing our great peers who we care for and respect yeah. burning out because institutions don't want to treat anybody either the fundraiser or the donor as a human and if we bring humanity back into the entire process So that's what I'm hearing too, Jason, on the retention side, on the professional side. And again, even the fundraising side, Mm -hmm. let's be more human, treat each other like human and have human processes rather than trying to, you know, bleed the standard operating procedure and come, you know, and, you know, like um, script everything, right? Right? There's a lot of people who really believe in that kind of fundraising too.
0: Well, I,
2: I don't think fundraising was all that terribly better or worse like 25 years ago when I mean, i've been in this 22 22 years but i talked to a lot of my colleagues on the lately i talked to some colleagues on the podcast who have been in who have been in it for three decades and and that's basically what they say paul they say the the, the, the we have so automated it and we have so turned it into tech, tech manuals, and we have so systematized it, we've literally turned and, and they were doing all this, they were doing some of this, they didn't have the capabilities that we do now, you know, three decades ago, but we've sort of turned everything so much into a machine. And the angst that they express is just this fear that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and, and, and until it just sort of collapses in and on itself.
0: I don't think it will. I think that um, we are at a point of inflection. I think that our sector is going through a reckoning and I'm hopeful for uh, some of the other conversations that are happening about we simply do not want to do things this way anymore. And what that's going to mean is that we need to redefine what our credentials look like and how we're teaching this work. And that, is exciting. And I think that can offer some hope. What else do you think is making the world hopeful about this sector right now?
2: I, I think um, that's a good question. Let me think about that one for a moment. Uh, you know, I'll
1: tell you, I, I, just, yeah. uh, I just saw this great TikTok uh, that uh, with, of a hiring search professional who said, you know, with all this resignation stuff and everything, dear employers, how does it taste? You know, that thing, your own medicine, <laughs> you know, for a, for a long time, it was an employer's market and it, fundraisers were treated as a commodity. And now that and both young professionals and senior professionals, I think, are opting out for the time being, you know, again, if institutions say, how can we fix this and meaningfully say, how, what can we do to fix this? I think people will come back in, but we, but institutions have to recognize what they've done and where we're at.
2: I, I think my answer to your question, Kimberly, I, I, think, I think donors are starting to see or differentiating between organizations that put resources and tools and whatever, whatever they're meeting needs um, really close to the ground. And what they're also doing is, is they're facilitating ways for the donor to perhaps get closer to that. And I don't mean like literally like poverty tourism or anything, but I mean they're helping them sort of see this money at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where um I think we have a um and and and, and I think we have an enlightened donor. If, if, think, about, think about the conversations that you two have obvi- obviously had with Lisa, for example. I, I think Lisa Greer is a great example of an enlightened donor who sort of is has seen behind the curtain of the way that fundraising is working. And she sort of sees and understands some of the frustration that we, we understand on our side. Um, but what that's also giving way to is that when... When someone like Lisa interacts with somebody, a fundraiser who genuinely wants to facilitate a meaningful relationship and really put her money at work in very significant ways. I know some of the I know some of the organizations, for example, that she that she support, she and her husband support Um they're far more responsive and they've they've got more re- resources to do it. I mean, we know, we know there's a tremendous transfer of wealth. We know that the boomers are going to be giving away far more money than perhaps their parents did. And they're going to be giving it away for a long time mm-hmm. and every generation subsequently. That's a, probably some of the stuff you talk a lot about, Paul, but I, th- I think the way that sort of this enlightened donor, um, is perhaps for someone like that, you know, it's very intriguing. It's exciting, and it and it and it should translate into very meaningful work for people like like the three of us who we're advocating for.
1: Yeah, I bought that book for a couple heads of advancement to mm-hmm. say just so you know, this is how the new world of fundraising is playing out with real donors. Yes, it was one of her. It's in the book. It's a chapter, but it haunts my dreams since when she said it, which was, I as a donor do not know what a year-end gift is yeah. and charities yeah. are and I'm starting to see it. We're heading to the end of the year, make your year-end gift. And she said, I, that's not even a thing. Is it a thing? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and she asked, she even asked a question. Like, is it like a legal thing that that you do or I'm obliged? Well, like, it's not. And again, this is the danger even of giving Tuesday. I was part of the team that helped to grow it here in Canada and even the leaders of that movement are saying, for the love of Pete, Giving Tuesday is not about fundraising. And please, <laughs> yes, yes. Here. Cannons and blast donate now out of them, which is what a lot of people do. The most meaningful stuff I see done on that day, also the most money raised, is that relational, is the community building. And that's why I love the concept of civic movements, city movements again i'm more obsessed with getting rid of the words and the machinations of philanthropy and getting more back to the basics of generosity yeah, yeah generosity and gratitude i
2: mean those are the two sides of a very human interaction mm-hmm. that's what it is and 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 as long as we you know to, to just sort of continue to riff on your question kimberly the more if we want to get this right 10 years out there ought to be more human beings on each side of the exchange experiencing what it's like to be to be both generous and to be also very grateful. Yeah. Um, we should be the intermediators, mediaries, or the facilitators of essentially what that is—that human exchange between generosity and gratitude.
0: Yeah, exactly. That that would be a beautiful day when we can all stop whinging. And start getting excited about that.
2: It's very human. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Thank you for being here.
2: I and I and I think I think my friends up in Canada probably haven't or uh, step ahead of two on that one. So you guys you guys might get there faster than we do.
1: So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's well, been a pleasure for <laughs> fighting for the profession and for the well being of our colleagues we care about so much, Jason. It's awesome. Yeah
2: glad to be here thank you
0: well that was fun thank you so much jason for joining us and to all of you for listening in and please remember to like review subscribe and share so that more people can join this community and we can keep making connections see you next time